I don't want to live a life that is numb and empty and lacking the bad feelings as well as the good feelings. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I am going to keep trying. Now, we're talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Suicide Noted. As always, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Since we started in July, we are in more and more countries. And you know what? Whatever your reasons are for listening, thank you. I really hope it's helping. And of course, a special thanks to all of our suicide attempt survivors who have joined me to share so openly and honestly. A couple of quick favors. If you like this podcast, let people know about it. And if you listen on Apple, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. Okay. Today, I am talking with Ash. Ash lives in British Columbia, Canada, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Ash. How you doing? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Mm. I've been excited about this. This is my first podcast. So Really? Yeah. So <laughs> thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was because um, I'd been listening to your podcast for a while. And mm -hmm. then I was like, should I actually contact him and do this? Do I have the courage? Yeah, something just told me that it's time. I've been sharing my story in different ways for a while through my Instagram and through my art. I don't particularly love talking, but, <laughs> but I feel like I'm moving into that, especially with my expressing my art, um, mm -hmm. just getting used to actually doing, having conversations with people about it instead of just writing. Well, that's great. I appreciate it. Before we jump in, I must ask about your tattoos, even though people can't see them because it's a podcast. What was the impetus to get that stuff on your arms? I think that the tattoos are a medicine for me. And once I started, uh, I started when I was 18 and I just got small tattoos. I still don't regret those ones, thankfully. But as I progressed and went through um, my 20s and was dealing with a lot of depression and dealing with anxiety, I found that when I got tattooed, yeah, I really felt amazing afterwards. <laughs> and and it was it's a story. So all my tattoos contain elements of what helped me get through some of the darkest times in my life mm -hmm. and all kind of archetypes. So one is the Norse goddess Freya. Um, the other is Shakti and Shiva. So light and dark dynamic and death. And then I have a lot of Norse tattoos. So, because I really resonate with 
Norse pagan and Viking culture. It's a journey. Yeah. And I have a lot. So I have my one leg almost done. And then I have a completely blank canvas on my back and my other leg, which is exciting. I like to keep areas that I'm just going to completely, you know, dive into a project and not just do smaller pieces. I think it's that commitment to something for myself Mm. that really helps with the anxiety. And then getting tattooed is a crazy experience. Like energetically, I feel really grounded and Mm. happy present, I think is the main thing. And so, of course, I know your name is Ash, but in our email exchanges, it says Essence of Ash. So what is Essence of Ash? So is my art business. Um, It is a mixture of, I I decorate animal skulls, and I also do work with, I'm a doula, so I work with people who are terminally ill um, or at the end stages of their life. So Essence of Ash is really, I'm Ash, so ash part kind of came together when I was around 27 years old. So I'm 34 now. So a while ago, and it kind of accumulated into this way of expressing myself online. Hmm. That's a cool name and interesting work, really interesting work. Uh, You had said that you listened to the podcast, you found it obviously, and then you were listening to some of it or some of the episodes And I suppose what I'm curious about is why? I think when I was in a really dark time, uh, I looked up a lot of YouTube videos and I looked up podcasts, anything that might be useful. And I really appreciate hearing people's stories and the resilience, the strength that they gained and just kind of how they changed after their experience of surviving suicide. I found it really helpful and Mm. I resonate a lot of what people shared love the the vulnerability and the rawness and there's such a taboo about talking about those things that other people may have made you feel ashamed about or get uncomfortable about and it's just your podcast is all about sharing those parts and and seeing the strength that came from them even if there's if they don't see strength that came from it there's this journey and it's it's incredible to hear Yeah, I look at it as like the fact that you're still here. That's enough strength. Yes. You might might not have climbed a mountain. You might Mm -hmm. not have gotten a promotion. You're here. And if you've been somebody who at points in your life didn't want to be here, I'm like, all right. Yeah. Um, Even though I sometimes talk too much, I say I'm all ears. When you're, if you're, if you're willing to share about that, hmm, you know? Yes. When I talk about it in the past, people shut down a little bit because Mm -hmm. they don't know how to really respond, whether they should be really sympathetic or, whoa, you know, are you a fragile person? (laughs) You know, and now I feel in talking about it, I see how many people have been in the exact same situation. In talking about it, it's giving them the chance to share. And it's also just not being ashamed. Yeah. So Ash in Canada. Western Canada. Yes. You have at one point in your life attempted suicide. Yes. I had one major, uh, like I survived an attempt that where I took morphine and Percocet and had my stomach pumped and went through the, I, I wasn't actually admitted, but I had to go through some psychiatric and sessions and things like that afterwards. Mm -hmm. And other experiences where I've had 
planned attempts and suicidal ideation and not always told other people about those the, that ideation, even though I had a counselor, I had a psychologist, I've went through the whole gamut of supports. But just the fact that that's been something that's part, been part of my life since I was around 13 years old, you know, it, it never really went away. But now I have better tools to deal with the patterns that lead me to that place. Mm. One of the things that I'm not supposed to ask <laughs> is why it feels because some people feel like it's a judgy question. I don't think I'm coming from that place. Do you know why? Let's, can we just talk about the one when, so let me back up. When, when was that actual attempt that fortunately you did survive? So the actual attempt, uh, I was 23 years old and I had been struggling for quite a while. I had been sexually assaulted when I was 18 and never really recovered fully because I never told anyone about it other than my close, close friends. And then the hospital, uh, when I went to actually do the rape kit, that was festering inside for quite a long time. And then it would come out. And before that I'd been depressed, but it was building and building and building. And then I'd been through a lot of issues with my stomach. Like I'd had IBS, but I didn't have it diagnosed. Then I was getting extreme symptoms. So all these things coming together were putting me in a place that I just felt like, why, why should I even continue? Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of uh, self-deprecating thought patterns, like I, a lot of self-hate. I had a way of looking at my body that wasn't completely accurate. So it was just, you know, I look in the mirror and absolutely hate what I, what I saw and I didn't enjoy my job. I didn't feel close to anyone. So all of that brought me to a place where I was sitting on my floor I actually was looking in the mirror at myself, looking in my own eyes, which was pretty trippy. I made the decision and I told myself that I loved myself, but that it just, I thought because of my belief system, I thought, you know, if I end this existence, then maybe I can reset. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I thought it's got to be better than this. So I took morphine and Percocet. And I took everything I had in both bottles, which was a lot, a lot of pills. And I didn't know, I'd already Googled the amount you would really need. I'd done all this research as a lot of people tend to do when they're thinking about suicide. Mm -hmm. And so when I took it all, I knew that I would probably, I'd become unconscious fairly soon. I didn't know if I would throw up the pills. I didn't know what was going to happen, but what happened was I eventually did become, my breath became shallow and I did become unconscious, but a friend uh, actually was very concerned about me at that time because I'd been texting her what I was feeling. And so she was concerned and she came over to bring a care package and she actually knocked on the door and then walked in and I never leave my door unlocked. I would always lock my door, but my door was unlocked. She came in, she found me, she called 911. And I actually, my stomach was pumped and I woke up in the hospital. Didn't think I'd ever open my eyes and be there, be here again. And I, I actually felt relieved, which was a big sign. Yeah. So you, so sometimes I'll ask people how they felt waking up. And a lot of the times it's not relief. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. 
it was interesting because I think in, when I made the decision and I took the pills, there was this time, this panic that happened, but I'd already made the decision. So I, I felt I, you know, I have to do this, but I, I wanted to go back because I started thinking about my mom. I started thinking about the losses that the people around me had already experienced and how that might add. So the suffering that I was creating and my mind finally left the suffering that I was feeling and started thinking about what this was going to do to the world around me. And that's where I started to kind of grasp. But by that time I was so tired. It was just, it was over. Mm. You had said earlier that you had other times in which you were planning and ideating. Does that happen after you're 23? Yeah. And you try? So it's not as if, and I don't want to put words in your mouth at all, but it's not as if, all right, things are great now. No, no, hmm. no. Because after that, I had that rush of being back in life and I wanted to get, I always have a plan to get better. And that's the thing. People sometimes assume that when someone's suicidal or depressed, that they have no ambition or they have no desire to do better. They just kind of, it's that feeling of like no energy, lackluster, but I always would push to try and do better. And I actually went to live with my parents in Montana because they had moved to Montana and I spent time there and I tried really hard to, to be in a different mind state, but I did end up coming back after a couple months of living with them in a similar state of mind to when I was suicidal, but I came back with just my vehicle and no place to live. And really, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I got back to Saskatoon and I was sleeping in my car, found a room to rent and ended up moving into this room, but I didn't have a job. So I had to start from scratch, which caused a lot of stress. I end up working really well when I'm in a high pressure kind of high stress situation. Cause that's been my norm. It was that survival state. So when I'm in that, I'm pushing. But when I get into, I get into a state of, okay, like I'm just alone with my mind or I'm not doing something. That's when the depression would creep in and the self-hate and the, that you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. Um, this isn't going to work. No one's going to love you. These, these repetitive things that would go through my mind. And then I would go back into, well, maybe I just shouldn't continue because I didn't think I'd live past 25 and 25 was kind of my cutoff. You know, I thought to myself, I can live till I'm 25, but then that's long enough. I've done my time. If it doesn't get better by then, then get out. This is a question that may not be answerable, but speculating, and I'm being careful here. Mm-hmm. You'd said that you were dealing with a lot of stuff growing up. I, I think I got that right, right? The word you mm-hmm. used was depression. If not for the assault, do you think you would have tried? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The first time I talked about suicide, I was 13. And I brought it up to my mom and my stepdad. And I remember I had actually taken a knife from the kitchen and I put it in my drawer and I thought, you know, I'm just going to slit my wrist, but I'm going to slit them the right way. And at that point I didn't have, you know, I was growing up on a farm. I had dial up internet and I'd never Googled suicide, you know, or anything like that out of fear that my parents would see it in our search history. (laughs) But I already was thinking about it when I was 13. And I already had this feeling like I didn't belong here and that I wasn't good enough. I was bullied in high school and in elementary school very badly. And that bullying really took 
hold in me. And it kind of created this idea of what I was. And so that bullying, I carried it into my early twenties really. And then, uh, I think because my mom, she dealt with a lot of depression when I was really little. And before she met my stepdad, she was a single mom and she was abandoned by my biological dad. And that depression, even as a baby, as a young, young child, I could feel that like something wasn't right. The world wasn't a safe place. Just not feeling safe was my, my main kind of ground zero. So I feel that I would have still, it was just a matter of time. And 13 until I was finished high school, it was just like kind of that emo, like I was one of those emo kids, (laughs) the gothic emo kids. Um, But I love nature and I loved um, connecting on the farm with our land. And and I loved, I'd find animal skulls, which I always had this interest in, in death and kind of understanding what happens and why nobody wanted to talk about it. So there were positive parts of my childhood that I noticed how much better I felt when I was in nature and away from people. (laughs) Mm. Do you remember how your folks, your mom and your stepdad responded when you mentioned that at 13 years old? I don't think they really took it seriously at the time because they had so much stress in their lives. And my mom was already dealing with depression. Uh, There wasn't, we didn't have the best relationship and the best communication. So when I expressed that, it was kind of the same response I got later on, which was, how dare you think of that? Like, that's so selfish. You know, why would you even consider taking yourself out of the picture? How's that going to hurt us? You know, and and so there was that burden on me of, okay, you know, that makes me a selfish person. So I can't talk about this. I can't share my true state of being with people. And that's not safe either. So I would often, if I was in that state, I would run away. So from the time I was 13 on, I would run away from the farm. I would go, or I'd go hide somewhere and I'd spend time away from my family whenever I felt really, really low. And I thought maybe I would naturally, like something bad would happen and then it would just take care of things. So I was taking risks um, after that experience when I was 13. I think people generally make it pretty clear what they want or don't want to hear. Yes. (laughs) They're not always explicit about it, but it's clear. Okay. We're not going to talk about that anymore. Now it doesn't change how you feel about your life or presumably, or your ideating or your planning, but no, I'm just not going to tell you. Yeah. I'm not going to bring it up. I found that several times, even when I was in my twenties, if I would tell someone, then it would turn around as, you know, this is creating a lot of stress in my, like in their life, it would create stress. And then they would be a little worried about me kind of figuring out if they wanted to remove me from their life because that was a little difficult for them to process. Or if if there's instability, even if there wasn't in my actions instability, if it was, I'm in that place where I'm so sad and so empty that I'm considering this, am I someone that they want to keep around? So I, I noticed that in a lot of my relationships. And so it was harder to talk about it uh, openly for sure. Yeah. I mean, and from 13 on till today, did you, or do you have people in your life that you can talk about this stuff with outside of a bald dude in North Carolina? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So when I was 
31, I moved out of, I was in a relationship. I moved out of the house that, that we were living in together and that I thought, you know, we were going to get married and all these things. I left that relationship and I moved into my own place, really took a hard look at my life and what was going on. I stopped drinking alcohol. I stopped, I started eating differently. I started being very careful of the friends and the people that I allowed in my life. And it didn't get easier right away. But I noticed that um, the people that I did allow in my life, I would just be extremely honest about my past. I would pay attention to when I did share things that were vulnerable or they shared things with me, how, how easily we could just be present for each other and, and allowing. And I found that the people that I allowed in my life were actually really compassionate when I talk about what happened and, and that they started saying that it was more, that it made me a stronger person, that there was more depth because now I could be with other people who had been through that or worse things. And I didn't look away. So it was like that discomfort, like sitting in that discomfort, it really added a lot to my life and my ability to be with others who are dying. You know, it brought me to my current work really, which is all about depression and grief and death. And so really there was a lot of gifts in that, in that place that I was in. And those places I've been in many times. How do I pronounce this job title? Yeah, death doula. So, you know, there's birth doulas helping bring a life into this world. And so that transition in and then the transition out, it's basically creating a safe container for um, just sitting with someone who is in the process of dying. Wow. So since 31, a few years ago, you found more people. That you can talk to about this stuff. Yeah. And uh, I share a lot on my social media, which at first was very difficult, but I started sharing openly about miscarriage, about severe depression, about social anxiety, and about my suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. And also my, my mom's sister, she committed suicide three years ago. And Mm -hmm. my biological dad's sister committed suicide seven years ago. So there is this suicide part of my family and depression. Like a lot of, I see ancestrally how much this is through my mother's line and through my father's line. So I think in doing work around that, about, you know, what I was taught from a young age and what I picked up on. And then my auntie, I saw parts of myself, like parts of her, I guess, in me, in in her behavior. And so I know that if I, if I would have continued to go down the road, I was going down and isolating myself like she did, I would have had to have committed suicide. It just, it just isn't sustainable. Yeah, you're right. Do you think that people who ideate and or attempt are by definition mentally ill? No, no. I think that um, often for myself anyways, when I was suicidal, it was just a big red flag for the things that weren't working in my life. When I was a preteen, I was unhappy with my living situation. I was unhappy with school. I was unhappy with my friendships and how I was seeing myself. So basically everything in me was screaming that this wasn't working and I had to change. I had to sit with, you know, what I actually needed or hear what I actually needed. And as I got older, I would resist that. I thought so much that if I focused on myself, I would be selfish. And that was this huge thing that was imprinted in me from a young age. Like you have to be selfless. You can't 
you can't put yourself first or take care of yourself. And so that would always come back as depression and, and that feeling of really contraction, like that my whole being was contracted. And I tried to fit myself into the box of going to university, completing the degree that I needed, working a job that I would have the salary that I wanted. And all of that just devastated my spirit. So yeah, of course I would be suicidal. So I think a lot of people, they think, oh, there's something wrong with me because I think this way, but it's because you're highly sensitive that you, you know, you get these messages and then you think, well, I have to fix something, but Mm -hmm. it's an internal thing instead of looking at the root of why you're feeling that way. Hmm. Do you still ideate? No, it's been a long time. Um, It's been two years since the last time I felt really suicidal. Um, And I had went through another miscarriage at that time. And I think that triggered a lot of old thoughts and ideas. And I'd also been with a partner who was really promiscuous. And so it was just that feeling of betrayal and that feeling of, of going through things that made my body create so much, like I was in so much pain all the time for about three months. So that depression that I sunk into, and then I isolated myself from all my closest friends so I could just deal with my, my stuff by myself. And then I, I thought again, but I, I had a different experience this time. It was almost like I witnessed myself being suicidal instead of really being in that fully. There was a part of me that was seeing what was happening and seeing, okay, well, I'm thinking the same thoughts I used to think. It's like a spiral and I'm ending up in the same place. So part of me could step back and I didn't make a plan. I didn't commit to it fully, but it was a horrible way to feel. I bet. Yeah. What are some, or perhaps just one myths around all this stuff that we want to call bullshit on? that if you're suicidal, then it means you have a mental illness. I also found when I was at my lowest, I went to see a psychiatrist. I went through all the avenues. So I, I did everything. Like I was on antidepressants, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medication, and they kept shuffling around medications. And, and then I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnotherapy And I was bombarded by these tools that were supposed to support me, um, but it just kept covering up. Like I was becoming so numb. So I wasn't even feeling my emotions anymore. And that was apparently me making progress. That's when I got really scared because I had no passion. I had no appetite in Mm. any aspect of my life. And I was apparently healed (laughs) or healing. I had to slowly wean myself off of some of those things eventually to get the passion for life back, which is backwards because a lot of times um, with psychologists, you're told you just have to keep on this, you know, keep the antidepressants. And, And I'm not saying that antidepressants aren't helpful and they were helpful, but I don't want to live a life that is numb and empty and, and lacking the bad feelings as well as the good feelings. So I had to do kind of an alternative approach and I had to listen completely to myself and listen to what I needed, which was very difficult because Mm -hmm. it went against everything these really well-trained people were telling me. You're not getting like an email every day from yourself saying, yeah, those green vegetables were great. Don't do this. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. It's messy. It's, 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 you're relying on some of the same things that you probably don't trust 
how do you trust that you're doing the thing that is likely to be beneficial? Yeah, it's, it is extremely difficult. Um, I feel that I still deal with depression. I notice that it's part of who I am, but it's not creating a problem in my life anymore. I actually see that my depression is that inner wisdom that I have that's kind of keeping me on track because I am highly sensitive to the ways that I used to think. So if I'm looking in the mirror and I notice that part of myself that's so programmed in, whether it's from my mom, like watching my mom when I was a kid and how she talked to herself, or whether it's how I was treated at certain points in abusive relationships, I have to deprogram those things and and actually pay attention to them. So I started meditating and I started um, sitting with when I was really feeling horrible, instead of distracting myself and just doing, you know, putting on the TV or, or going on my phone, just sitting and feeling it. And the moment I would do that, when I would sit and just feel all the things it would transform. And that was the opposite of what I used to do because I used to be just push through it, hustle, you know, like, you got to create something else, or you got to, you know, make more money and buy more things so that you have the things that you're supposed to, to be happy. It was instead just sit still. And, and that was why I was so drawn to the work with dying people, because when you're working with someone who is in a hospital bed and they are hooked up to tubes or, or whether they're elderly and kind of at the end of their life, there's this presence and that what truly matters and this love, like it's, it's a state of complete bliss and love. And you, and it would be opposite of what you would think because it's so heavy, but that stuff that we think is really heavy is actually the meat of what we need to dig into and and be with. So it was actually treasure, this feeling like this heavy feeling that I would get into. It, It just started to feel like my daily life and it started to transform and yeah. Now here I am. Here you are. Yeah. It's something's working uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you do any of the non-alternative things, therapy, medication, or whatever else that we typically, for better or worse, say that's going to help? That's the answer. I I did so much of that when I was 31. Um, I went through that full spectrum. I spent so long with, I was actually in a, they thought I might have schizophrenia. Um, at first, cause my dad had schizophrenia. Um, but then they're like, no, no, you actually don't. You don't ask. So I got tossed around between, because when I was, I was really depressed. I went through, um, a time when I basically it was like psychosis because I was so depressed. Yeah. Like I just basically broke. I couldn't interact with people. I couldn't. And, and it was a really deep place to a really empty, dark place to be in, but nobody knew how to deal with it. So they put me in this program to find out if I had schizophrenia because my biological dad had schizophrenia. And within a week they were like, wait, you know, you don't have any of the, the symptoms here. You're not. So I got tossed around to all these different groups. And then I got put in to see the cognitive behavioral therapy, the hypnotherapy, and then they changed my medications. I felt like for two years, I had to do everything that they said to kind of just see if it worked, because that's what I was taught was that these people know what's best for me. And they'd only give me what was going to help. And even if the side effects were horrible and my, my gut was being, my gut lining was being destroyed, 
at least my mind would be healed. So eventually when I came out of that, I just decided, you know what, I gave that a real go, but I'm going to try things like, yeah, like I, I actually did an ayahuasca ceremony, um, which is a pretty alternative thing to do. And I did that um, when I was 32. In Canada? Yeah. It's hard to find places outside of Peru that are safe it is. and actually not total bullshit. The shaman actually came from Peru. It all worked out at the perfect time near Saskatoon. This, this ceremony happened for three days. Uh, it was difficult. It was very difficult because you get plunged into some pretty dark places. And a lot of specialists, a lot of the people that I would have been seeing before would never have recommended that I did that. Mm-hmm. I'm happy that I did it, but it's it's not for everyone. No. And this is nothing really to do with our conversation, but Saskatoon might be the best named city in North America. <laughs> what a great name. Saskatoon. Yeah. Like you could yeah. just say that all day long and just it just puts a smile on your face. Saskatoon, where are you from? Saskatoon. Saskatoon, what? Yeah, Saskatoon. I do. I miss it in a lot of ways because I was there for so long. But Nelson is is gorgeous. It's it's a real like in the mountains and it's so slow pace. There's lots of hippies. It's just a very like loving, mm. loving city. And so it's it's a different vibe for sure. When you were at your lowest or the different points in your life when things were really hard, it sounds like you didn't have many people in your life, perhaps at, at points, nobody who you trusted to really talk to you. What would you have wanted somebody to say or do for you in the, at those times that may have been helpful or useful or whatever else? Yeah, I think I've thought about that a lot. And I think that it was okay to feel exactly how I was feeling, um, that you're still lovable, you're still worthy, you still belong, even when you're feeling at this lowest place at this darkest time. And I just wanted someone to tell me that I was okay, that it's all okay. And uh, I noticed that later when I actually did my ayahuasca ceremony, that came up because I was, I, I went back into that darkest time. I was surrounded. All I wanted really was to be held by some, just be hugged um, and told that it's all okay and that it's all going to be okay and that you are lovable. You matter and that you're going to make choices in the future. Like every action you make, you don't know how it's going to ripple out and affect those around you. So if you take that experience and see it as depth and see it as like a strengthening of your compassion, then you can use that. You don't have to use it right away, but this is this depth of feeling, like even the darkness, even that heavy, dark, like the dark night of the soul, Mm. when that does transform, then you can sit with people in their darkness and not turn away. And that is a gift. So I think it's like, it's part of your purpose to be here, to experience what you're experiencing. And then when it does transform, because everything changes. And that was a real gift for me later on, when I'd go through really heavy times, I tell myself, this is going to change. Some people think impermanence is a negative thing because they're like, oh, we're getting older. We're going to die. You know, it's, it's, but that too is a gift because when you're in this state, things always change and they're always kind of a roller coaster of up and downs. 
But that resilience that you build is going to be a gift that you give to someone else. Your capacity for holding these heavy emotions is going to expand. And so I told my my mom that and other people who went through depression, you know, this is, it's just showing your sensitivity to the world. And that is a lot of people just numb themselves as they get older. And as the world beats you down and more and more negative things happen, you have a choice whether you open up more and become more playful and build a sense of humor and lighten up, or you can close and you can harden and you can shut people out. And so if you're conscious of that, then Mm. you can be a gift that you give to others. I think one of the hardest things is when people are really in that space. It's yes. so hard to make that connection. You it know, is. really in that. And everybody's different, right? So there's no one thing that's ever going to be the right thing to say or do. But when you're really down, it's hard. It's really, really hard. You know, it, it's just maybe, maybe the right thing to do is, yeah, I don't know, maybe hug them. I mean, just yeah. something very basic and primal and just, I don't know. I don't know. It was really helpful um, that a friend of mine did for me was she just sat with me and didn't say anything. Yeah. And I cried and then I just sat there in silence because I would kind of go through my mind was taking me to all these different places and I couldn't snap out of it to be in reality long enough to hear what she said. It was just gibberish. And then I would judge what she said too, because in my mind, it was like, well, you got this. How, how dare you even tell me? I'm not going to, you know, I don't have these things that you have. My mind was so critical of myself. So I couldn't hear her. So she just sat next to me. She'd put her hand on my leg or she put her hand in my hand or she'd just sit. And that presence made me feel so much better. And later on, when I came out of it more, I could hear a little bit more of what she had to say. But yeah, it's it's hard when you're really in it. Really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you shared that, though, about sometimes, sometimes sitting with someone. And I don't think most people understand the power of that. And yeah. sometimes sitting with someone is not not we're not talking 30 seconds. It could be an hour, two hours. It could be a long time. If you're willing and able, uh, mm-hmm. there's power there. I don't know if that's the right word. There really is. There's something so powerful about that. Yeah. Mm. And I think for people who are support, support people or like loved ones of, of people who are going through that, that desire to fix it, like that, that was hard because there are people that, that were around me that were like, well, you just should do this. You should try this. And it would just be this thing after this thing. Well, why don't you, you should start eating this way or try this supplement. And I know that it comes from a place of, but it drove me nuts and it made me not want to talk to them. I didn't want the shame of when I didn't try that thing, which I wasn't going to (laughs) try. Yeah, that's the real, I think, I think, and this is just obviously what I think, but they're going to stop talking to you. Like if they, if if I know, if it's clear that I'm going to say this and you're going to try to fix, even if you're well-intentioned, like I'm just going to not talk as much or maybe at all, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, I don't want to say it sounds like you like, I'm going to be, it's not my favorite way of my favorite <laughs> verb choice here. I don't know if you like your life, but you it doesn't sound like you hate it. Things have changed. Like even, I didn't think that I'd ever be in a relationship again. I thought I would just be like a, a little lady living in the woods with her skulls and mushrooms. 
what, <laughs> a, what an image. Okay. But now I am in a relationship that I feel I can talk about these things, which is a challenge because if you're someone who does deal with depression and you end up with someone who has not dealt with a lot of depression, um, there's positives and negatives to that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel more comfortable and able to communicate now when I'm in that place and I know what I need and to be able to say what you need is a huge step. Like I never used to be able to do that. And to, we moved to this new community, which was a, another big step of cutting off all, you know, I don't have the friends, the community that I had in, in Saskatoon, but I have these tools now that are helping me a lot, like my art and, um, the art is, is a huge thing. And I, I work from home. So I also don't have to deal with the anxiety of being at a job where I really don't align with what I'm doing. Cause that created a lot of depression. So there are things in my life. Not everyone can do that. So I'm really grateful that this is happening right now that I'm able to, you know, stay kind of away from, from the stress of, of working a nine to five job and be in a place where I can do other work that aligns with who I am. And that makes me happy. And although depression does come in because it, I get hard on myself still. And that's what the thing that people with depression will say is it never really goes away. Like you carry, you carry anxiety and depression with you in different forms throughout your life. And I think because I, I went through it so severely it created an imprint on me, but now I don't judge people the way that I think when I was really young, I used to, you know, like everyone's going through a different experience and all experiences are valid. So it also did this, you know, like ability to be with all sorts of people and not judge their experience as more valid or less valid than mine. And there's no drama in my life, which is, is really wonderful. <laughs> and I think for years I did have drama. What kind, what does your art look like? Mandalas, runes, like, you know, bind runes, Norse bind runes, um, very detailed mandalas that I would spend hours and hours and months on. That was really helpful for me. So yeah, I start a project and then I get, I add to it a little bit more every day. And then the skulls, I get wolves, lynx, deer, elk, moose, all different types of animals. And so when I get those in, sometimes I clean them myself. And that process has been really incredible too, because it's again, like that taboo, that uncomfortable, disturbing, but then it gets transformed into something really beautiful. And I also do pet memorials. So I've cleaned animal, um, like pet skulls for people. And then I return this, I do ash paintings. So I get the cremation, the, the ashes, and I paint them into mandalas. And we can find that some of those people can see on your Instagram. Yes. On essence of ash essence, and then dot of dot ash. Awesome. I'll put a link in there as well. So people can check it out. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of open-ended here. What what else? Anything else uh, you wanted to share? Uh, questions I didn't ask that perhaps you wanted me to? The big thing is that um, it felt like the dark chapters of my life, <laughs> like from the ages of 18 to 31, it's kind of a blur. And a lot of it is actually a lot of it, I can't fully remember, which I think happens with a lot of people that go through traumas and go through a lot of 
heavy things. So it, it takes a lot for me to actually remember actual events. I remember the big things, but kind of in between years are kind of blurs. So what I've done is I've been every morning I write like just this flow of consciousness. I write three pages and I've been doing that for quite a while. I started doing it when I read the artist's way and I never really stopped. And that has been so helpful in unloading my mind and nobody reads this stuff. Like nobody would want to, it's just garbage. There might be a tidbit of something good in there, but it's not to create anything. And that time that I carve out in the morning to do that, it's also that self-care and doing something that's just for me to empty out all the stuff and the patterns and the thoughts. And that has been instrumental in, in helping me with some of the stuff the like identifying some of the ways that I still look at the world or look at myself. I've, I found that just because I don't have to show it to anyone and I don't have to create anything and it doesn't have to be a revelation it's been really helpful with the depression. And um, I don't know if I would have been able to do it when I was really suicidal, <laughs> but it's a tool that, that kind of happened afterwards. And also the, the sharing on social media, I was so afraid to share about, about suicide, but so many people have experienced the same thing. And the, the reach of people messaging me, not even wanting to share the whole story or like a partner of someone who, is a survivor of suicide and, and just being able to be vulnerable in that way was really healing Mm. for me. And, you know, it's, it's not something that is your, as usually talked about on, on social media, usually it's the, the, the highlight reel of, of everything. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I tend to try to stay somewhat objective. Uh, It's a balancing act for me, but I do want to say that uh, I am glad that you you're here, not only today, but in general, and that that attempt or those other times in which you were planning uh, didn't pan out for lack of a better word. And you're with us. Yeah, I'm very, very grateful. It also makes me, um, I show up in the world a lot differently, I think, um, because of those experiences. Yeah, it's just, you know, every day, like that present moment, I feel like I'm actually here, you know, mm-hmm. before I wasn't, there was always an absence. And in, in, even when I was around people, there was an absence. I was thinking about something else. But now when I'm with someone, I feel like there's that, that awareness that this is all there. This is all there is, is this moment. So I pay less attention to my past And I'm appreciative of it, but it's not something I dwell on or ruminate over a lot. I think that if I hadn't had that, though, I might not experience this this way of being. And I don't think about the future as much either. Like you got to plan for things. But in dealing with people who are dying all the time, you see that you can plan so much. And then the things that really matter kind of fall to the, the, the foreground. So, yeah, just being here fully. Mm. Ash in British Columbia, (laughs) episode number 60, I believe. Uh, Good number. It's a good number. And, you know, I had had my hopes set high that I would be able to find people. I knew they were out there. And uh, I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad that that people are joining and sharing. And some people, or a whole lot more people are just hearing it. And so, yeah, it's good. So I appreciate you being part of it. Yes, yeah. 
lot of your episodes. Um, and every single one has brought something like I, I appreciate what you're doing so much and there's a lot of value to it To I know in my life anyways. So, and oh. many other. I'm glad to hear that. Let's help people feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. Yes. I admit, yes. That's my goal. Maybe yours are different, but in my space right now, I'm content with that. And if that I, I'm able to contribute to that, that's a decent day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Sincere thanks again. And for, by the way, for somebody who about an hour ago said that they rarely talk about this, <laughs> you, you pretty, seem pretty comfortable and pretty, uh, pretty on point. So uh, I'm glad for that. My social anxiety always eventually goes away once it's, if it's one-on-one. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's, uh, it's funny how that is, but. I hope that you keep finding spaces that you feel comfortable in and keep talking about this because there are to state, you know, and I know you know this, but yeah, people really need to hear it and not yeah. just the, the, the positive stuff. That's part of it. But I believe strongly that they need to hear some of the things that we can kind of classify as dark, but nonetheless, yeah. it's part of a larger story. And um, yeah, I hope yeah. I hope you keep doing it. I really do. All right, Essence of Ash, thanks again, and uh, and hope you have a good day. You too. Thank right. you. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Ash out in British Columbia. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Suicide Noted. And if you have an interest in storytelling, the personal narrative kind of storytelling, check out my other podcast, Grit, True Stories That Matter. Okay. That's all for episode number 60. Stay strong. Do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.